Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 37 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app. Our favorite is Overcast, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. Check out our guides to great law firm website design and computer security available at lawyerist.com slash guides, or click on guides at the top of the site. Use the coupon code podcast to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word podcast into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, you should know that you probably would be happier if you were. Sign up at callruby.com slash lawyerist and Ruby will set you up for free. So Aaron, I just caught wind of a link uh, and a uh, future claim chowder by Nicole Black, former lawyerist, uh, writer, and um, general geek. She believes that within two years, 50% of lawyers will be have an Apple Watch and be using some sort of a wearable in their practice, I guess. And you don't believe this? I don't think 50% of lawyers are using Facebook. I, like 95 have an iPhone. Yeah, no, that's probably true. That's true. But the majority have an iPad. So, so I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, um, the Apple Watch is like the geekiest possible gadget right now. Yep. Um, but on the other hand, I just read something somewhere else that showed that um, people who aren't geeks are much happier with their Apple Watch than people who are, which suggests to me that it is a particularly popular thing with non-techie people, which kind of defines the legal industry. And I would say most importantly, it's brand new and can't really do very much yet, but that's going to change. Yeah, and in two years, it probably will be a more exciting device. Right now, it's basically a way to get notifications. And as someone who has almost all of the notifications on everything technological in my life turned off because I don't understand why I would want to get pinged every two seconds, the idea of a thing that sits on my wrist that primarily exists to notify me of things is crazy. I don't know why I would want that. It makes yeah, me not want that You're also the guy who, on the day of the iPad announcement, put up a picture on social media of four iPhones taped together, or iPod touches, rather. <laughs> I remember. So you are the naysayer who doesn't see the long picture on Apple. No, well, okay. I mean, so the thing about the watch is, like, right now, I right now it basically is a notifications device, and I really yep. don't get why anybody wants that. But the but, original iPhone had no apps and no camera. Right, and, and it got better, and I was totally wrong about the iPad, and I think that in two years the Apple Watch will be great, but I still don't know why that means that all lawyers will have it. We're, we are a weird industry and I don't think we adopt technology in the same ways that other people do. I think 50% of lawyers owning specifically an Apple Watch is probably a reach. I think some huge percentage of lawyers owning some sort of smartwatch is actually pretty likely. And the Apple Watch will be the biggest of those. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I you know, I guess I'm, I'm also really hesitant. It drives me crazy, the trend in... 
um, legal technology, whether it's bloggers, podcasters, whatever, as soon as Apple releases a new thing or something or Google Glass comes out, for the next six months, you've got to listen to every single CLE provider in the country and people like Nikki, who, although I love her, she's almost always one of the first ones to come out and say, how lawyers can use the Apple Watch? How lawyers can use Google Glass? And I just, it's a lifestyle accessory. It's not a law practice accessory. I, I, I am, I will admit I'm highly skeptical that the Apple Watch will be an important law practice technology. Yeah. I mean, it, that that doesn't mean lawyers shouldn't buy it. I think lawyers should be normal human beings, and the fact that we're not even using Facebook in anywhere close to the same percentages as the normal population is a weird thing about us. But, um, yeah, I don't, so I don't know. May, Ooh, this maybe, is like a hot lawyerist exclusive. Sam Glover thinks <laughs> lawyers should be normal human beings. <laughs> It'd be nice. So, you know, I, I can't decide if I think that's a safe prediction just because the Apple Watch is going to be really popular, period. Or if I think it's crazy because lawyers are a weird demographic that is just not likely to get on board in anything like normal numbers. I'm going to split the difference and say 25% in two years. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Speaking of geeks, today I'm talking to one and also a lawyer about some of the amazing, seriously amazing things you can do with free online research tools. I'm Carol Levitt, President of Internet for Lawyers. I've been teaching lawyers how to use the Internet more effectively since 1999. My background is as a lawyer, a law librarian, and also a research and writing professor at Pepperdine University. I've written many books on the topic and have written lots of articles on it, too. And I'm Mark Ross, Vice President of Internet for Lawyers. Um, I do exactly what Carol does. I've only been doing it for less time. I've been speaking on the topic of using the Internet for investigative and background research and to work more effectively in the practice of law since about 2003. Um, I come to uh, research from a different angle, more of a, a corporate and uh, due diligence background, uh, having worked previously for uh, more than 15 years in corporate communications uh, and marketing. Well, welcome, both of you. And I have to say, so um, I know who Carol and Mark are because my, well, I think I've known who they are for a long time, but my, my wife went to their seminar and came home have, having bought their book and really excited about what she learned. Um, and I admit, I was like, well, what do I need to know about internet research beyond you know, fast case or Westlaw, LexisNexis, um, that's all the internet research I need, right? And then I saw them myself in um, at a local uh, CLE here in Minnesota, and um, I was kind of inspired and blown away. So I'm really excited to have you guys on the show today, and maybe you could start by clearing up for anybody else who might have that same misconception. What do lawyers need to know about internet research beyond Westlaw and LexisNexis and fast case? Well, Sam, Mark and I try to teach lawyers how to find information for free or low cost. We try to help them actually save money and perhaps not use uh, pay resources like Lexis and Westlaw. And we also like to teach them about um, fast case or case maker in case their bar associations subscribe to those databases for free for them. Many lawyers don't know that they have that access for free. And uh, one of the, the 
the, the really the genesis of the company back at uh, in 1999 um, was based on the premise that as more lawyers were venturing away from or adding uh, free internet resources to their research uh, toolbox. The free resources lack the kinds of training and support that you would get from a traditional paid resource like um, Lexis or Westlaw or even Fastcase or Casemaker. They all offer uh, robust training opportunities online and help pages. Not everybody knows where to find them or take advantage of them, but the free resources on the Internet don't have that. There's no customer service for research on the Internet, and that's where we try to fill the gap. You mean Google doesn't pick up the phone and answer your, your search questions, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, and I suppose um, there is, there's a lot of information lawyers need, and um, you know I've written before, and I think probably based on what you've talked about, uh, that some judges seem to be imposing a duty to Google on litigants, which is... You know, if you come before a court and say you can't find somebody and the judge types their name into Google and finds them, uh, you're not going to be able to get your default judgment. That's correct. And, you know, when I started the business in 1999, I researched case law to see if we had a duty to Google. And the first case I found was from the federal district court in Texas where the judge refused to admit any evidence from the Internet because he said it was voodoo information. And that was a 1999 case. And by 2005, I started to find cases where lawyers were admonishing, uh, I mean, excuse me, judges were admonishing lawyers for failing to Google. And really, um, this implied that there was a duty to Google, that you needed to use the Internet to find information. And you couldn't just say, I just can't find that person to serve them, when oftentimes it was pretty easy to Google people and find their addresses and phone numbers. And beyond that, uh, in 2012, the ABA added a new comment to Rule 1.1 regarding competence, um, specifically stating that lawyers have a duty to be uh, familiar with the risks and benefits associated with the use of technology. Uh, and more and more, that means being able to find the information that is readily findable on the Internet. Uh, just saying that I didn't run that search isn't enough anymore. Right, and for example, if you're... You, there's no excuse for being surprised when your client has said things that harm their case on Facebook, for example. You should have been on top of that from the get-go and should probably have incorporated that into your decision whether or not to represent that person. That, that's absolutely true. And, and even, beyond, um, even beyond the uh, never wanting to walk into a deposition or into court and be surprised by that kind of gotcha information. I mean, certainly it's embarrassing as an attorney, but it can be detrimental to the case. I think you make a very important point there, Sam, that lawyers should be doing this type of research uh, before they take a case because it can really make the difference um, to determining, one, whether the individual has a case or not, or two, whether they're telling you the truth. It's kind of like, uh, let's modify the old maxim, never ask a question you don't know the answer to, and let's change it to never ask a question unless you've already Googled for the answer. Uh, I think that it's a, a great 21st century. <laughs> so, you know, and I want to add in another, um, another point. You know, the ABA doesn't, the ABA is not the only one who's commented that we have to know how to use technology. A lot of the um, state bars are writing ethics opinions and they're being even more specific. For instance, New Hampshire has an ethical rule that lawyers must know how to use social media and use it as social as evidence. 
that they really can't avoid learning how to use social media. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of over the argument that it's okay to be a Luddite um, because it's just this is how the world communicates and moves and stores information and exchanges data. To, to, To behave as if it's somehow okay for lawyers to be ignorant of this is to say that it's okay for lawyers to be incompetent, and it's just not. I, I think that's absolutely correct, and there are, and there there is still a minority of lawyers who who will use that ignorance as um, you know as a shield or an, as an excuse, and less and less they're able to get away with it. Uh, to to take it back uh, a step um, to you know, the, the 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 analog world of information. Um, there's a great story that Carol told me from her days practicing. Um, where she had a client who was injured in a car accident. Um, and part of the issue was whether or not the client was at fault. Uh, and there were injuries on both sides uh, of the accident. And so as one does, she was reviewing the client's medical records. And in doing so, she found a note uh, from uh, her client's doctor on the bottom of one of the pages during one of his, um, one of his examinations that had nothing to do with the issues in the car crash, but were very important or could be very important to deciding, you know, how she might um, argue her point of the case. And that was in very large capital letters, the doctor advised this client to stop freebasing cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) That's information you want to know before you walk into a deposition. Right. (laughs) No lawyer would walk into a deposition without having read that record. And similarly, they shouldn't walk in uh, without having looked at the uh, social media, social network profile record of that client or an opposing party, if it's available. You would hope. So so maybe we could start with one of the most obvious things, Google. Uh, and, and when we say Google, we're sort of also referring to search engines, but um, despite Microsoft's ambitions to the contrary, search engines basically mean Google, right? Absolutely. And we, and that's a point that we often make in our live daily presentations is that we use Google as sort of a stand-in for every search engine um, because it has become synonymous with the term search engine. And it, it's just simply the most popular search engine in the English language. Um, when we ask attendees our live CLE programs, how many people use something other than Google? as their primary search engine, we rarely see a hand. No, that's because um, people who don't use Google don't know what they're using. No, they don't. And in <laughs> fact, some people will often respond that they use Firefox. Yeah. Or, or Fox Fire, um, <laughs> as someone told me on Friday. <laughs> so, so the oh, notion that, that we're past the time when this training is still needed um, is apparently a myth. Yes, because I think um, lawyers still don't understand the difference between a search engine and a browser. And, you know, Mark and I were at a seminar recently, and I asked the lawyer if he thought there was anything too basic that we had taught in the morning about Google, anything that he thought we could leave out in the future. And he said, oh, we don't really need the basics. And I said, when you say the basics, you mean things like how to set up an effective search using Boolean connectors or proximity connectors. And he said, oh, no, 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 not that. I never knew any of that. (laughs) Um, And really, you know, I've been teaching that since 1999 to lawyers. I've also been a law librarian and a law professor, and I've been teaching Boolean and proximity connectors since, I want to say, 
the 80s. And so to me, that's basic. And when he said, no, no, that's not basic, I never knew that. Once again, it, like as Mark said, it made me understand that people still need this training. And I think most lawyers have never taken an official Internet research class. And I think it's still, you know, obviously we're still in business 16 years later. Um, and it's never too late to learn. So in the interest of not being too basic, uh, why don't you give us the, what is Google beyond, you know, the box? What can I do besides just entering in some words? And what are, what are Booleans and proximity connectors? And what's, what's this mumbo jumbo we're talking about? Okay, so search engines want you to instruct them on how you want them to connect to your words that you type into that box. And if you just type in a string of words, Google will automatically add what we call the AND Boolean connector. So every word that you type in has to be in each search result. But you have a choice of also using OR. And OR is typically used when you want to search for synonyms. So if I want to search for lawyer or attorney or counselor or barrister, OR is what I'm going to use for my connector. Now, here's the one secret about OR that hardly anyone knows. It has to be in all caps. And most of us think that when we type anything into the Internet, um, it doesn't matter if it's uppercase or lowercase, but Google has some very precise requirements, and they want the OR to be in all caps. And Bing and Yahoo... And if you type it in lowercase, it means you're searching for the word OR. No, actually, they'll ignore the word OR because it's too common of a word. And so your search will then turn into an AND search. Hmm. So then you would have results that only had lawyer and attorney and barrister and consular, and it's not an OR search anymore. Oh, good to know. So you're really, really making a big mistake if you don't type in the OR in all caps. And so there's AND, OR, and isn't there NOT? Yes, there's a not, but here's the trick about not. Mark, I'll, I'll let you talk about the not. Um, every every search uh, tool will, I shouldn't say every, many search tools use the not in different ways. Uh, some will, will be very obvious and allow you to use the word not. Sometimes it might have to be in all caps or and not or but not. Google uses the not but in a very different way. Uh, you have to type a minus sign preceding the term or really anything that you want to exclude. So let's say, for example, I run a search for Sam Glover. But I only want to see... As you do weekly, right? I I do, I do. I I like to see what what you've been up to, (laughs) Sam, and where you've been. Um, But when I run that search, I get a lot of results from your site, The Lawyerist, and posts that mention The Lawyerist in the text. As I, as I read through them, I decide I want to see what else you're up to aside from the lawyerist. So I want to exclude any mentions or references to lawyerist. So I would search for your name. In the search box, I'll type Sam Glover. Then I leave a space. And then I type the minus sign and then the word lawyerist directly next to the minus sign with no space. And that search will bring me back results that include your name or the two words Sam and Glover, but do not include the word lawyerist. And then I can take it one step further. After I run that search, I see that I'm still getting a lot of results from the lawyerist website. So I can leave a space after Sam Glover space minus lawyerist 
space, tag another minus sign, and now I'm going to give Google a very specific instruction. I'm going to tell it to exclude any results from the lawyerist website. So after that second minus sign, I'm going to type the instruction site, S-I-T-E, all lowercase. And it has to be lowercase so that Google recognizes that it's an instruction that I'm giving it. If I type it in uppercase, it ignores it. S-I-T-E colon, and then lawyerist.com. By doing that, I'm telling Google with the minus sign, ignore what comes next. And what comes next is this one specific website. So if I run that search, Sam Glover space minus lawyerist space minus site colon lawyerist.com, I will exclude results that include the word lawyerist and any pages from the lawyerist.com website. You know, I, I find the not uh, Boolean to be really useful on Flickr because I'm often searching for images and it turns out that there is a band named Everything. Um, and so I'm always trying to search for uh, for a term, uh, but not band photos. Uh, and so I'm usually sticking in a minus because uh, Flickr uses that same minus uh, uh, syntax. Uh, so I'm usually sticking in a minus for show or uh, music or band or something like that because I'm trying to trying to get search results that don't include bands. And that's and that's the exact reason why you would want it. But once you be, once you run your search and you see that there there are these extraneous results pointing the topics that you don't want, use the minus sign to exclude those topics. Um, and you bring up an interesting uh, or a useful point um, regarding Flickr. Um, there was a time when Yahoo and even uh, Bing recognized um, both the minus sign and the not connector. So you could use either not or the minus sign. Now you can only use the minus sign at all three sites. So that brings uh, up something that I've kind of wondered about because, you know, in law school, I, I, I've known about Booleans since probably high school, but, um, but the syntax, when I really learned it, I learned using Westlaw. Why is there not a common syntax for Boolean connectors? Can I put a minus sign in front of that question and not answer it? <laughs> I mean, that, that's part of the I, I problem. Think, is I think, I think um, many databases want to you know, be unique. They want to distinguish themselves from the other database. And so they make up their own syntax. Um, you know, Westlaw has a proximity connector, and it's just the slash, slash 2, slash 10 within two words. And Lexus has W slash within two words. Mm -hmm. Now, interesting that you brought that up because Google has a proximity connector that no one knows about, and even Google... Well, I do because I went to your presentation. Um, I I, I would like to ask Sam to perhaps repeat that in case uh, folks didn't hear how we learned about the proximity (laughs) connector Google. How was that again, Sam? I I learned about it by listening to you guys at your presentation, and I was so happy because I love proximity connectors. I think they are the most useful thing in the world. And they're really useful for um, proper names. If I'm going to search for Sam Glover, and I don't know if you use a middle initial or a middle name, or if I know what it is, but you use it sometimes and sometimes you don't, it's better for me to say Sam within two words of Glover than for me to just search Sam Glover or even put Sam Glover in quotation marks. Because if I put Sam Glover in quotation marks, I'm going to miss every reference to you that mentions your middle or your, your middle name or your middle initial. So the proximity connector is really important for proper names. It's really helpful for, uh, for like searching for 
um, commentary on a lawsuit um, that might include both of the parties' names because you're not if you're if you're searching for it, people may not bother to cite the lawsuit if they're writing a treatise on a blog or something like that. And so you might want to search for the two names within the same paragraph, for example, instead of um, instead of right next to each other over a V or or somebody might use different different you know might use a versus VS instead of a just the V or something. So I find it useful for things like that too. So what is and the I proximity guess we connector? Tell people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We should tell people what it is, and Mark will tell you how he learned it. <laughs> uh, so the, the proximity connector that Google uses is the term around. That's and it right. has to be in all caps. Um, and then it's followed by an open parenthesis, uh, and then the number of words that you want your two keywords separated by, and then you close the parenthesis, leave a space, and add your second keyword. So in Carol's example, um, I would search for Sam space, Around, in all caps, open parenthesis to close parenthesis space, Glover. So now I'm instructing Google to search for Sam within two words of Glover or around two words of Glover. So I would get those results that include just his first and last name, but also any place where those two names appear within two words of one another. So that includes middle name or middle initial or even two middle names or initials if, if Sam rolls that way. And also, Mark, um, it will give you last name, first name. So if someone talks about Glover, comma, Sam, it will bring that back. Now, Sam, um, I'm going to guess that your, maybe your full name is Samuel. Is that correct? Sure. Yep. Okay. So, you know, I don't really have to type in Sam or Samuel because Google automatically understands um, uh, all the variations of names, and it will look for both of those names. Uh, I will I will give them credit for understanding most variations of names. I don't know that I go so far as to say all. Right. But it's common. It, yes, it, it, it's an important point that Carol makes that, that Google has gotten smarter over time and recognizes uh, common nicknames for proper names and even common synonyms uh, for uh, proper nouns often. Uh, so, for example, Carol's uh, synonym search earlier for attorney or barrister or lawyer or solicitor now, if I ran a search for dog lawyer at Google, I would also get results that include dog attorney. But probably not in the same order. No, not, not, not necessarily in, in the same uh, order, but sprinkled through the results, um, pages that include both of those terms. And again, that, that, that sort of gets into uh, uh, how Google ranks those pages in terms of relevance with regards to our search and literally hundreds of, of other criteria. But it's gotten smart enough over time to recognize those common synonyms for the various, uh, various terms. Um, I would, I'd, I'd also suggest that um, one of the reasons for uh, the inconsistency in Boolean connectors is that when services like Lexis and Westlaw were developed, they were generally developed from scratch, in-house, in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So that the logic that, um, that they were trying to employ, uh, they were basically making it up as they went along. <laughs> um, whereas now, developers have the advantage of Open, so open source software. They have the, the ability of knowing what's come before and how it works rather than the closed proprietary system that uh, existed before. So with that said, Mark, what happened, what happened to Google and coming up with this mystery around? 
Well, I, I think there it's it might be another example of the closed system because their their proximity connector has existed for many many years and maybe in fact to the back to the very dawn of of Google's existence hmm. um, and it's been used internally all of that time. Yet even for a self-described fan of proximity connectors like Sam, most people are unaware, and the reason that they're unaware is that if you go to Google's help pages, and they have extensive help pages that talk about everything we've talked about and infinitely more, if you go there, you won't find any documentation of their proximity connector, despite the fact that it's existed for many years. Uh, and I've, uh, so I first learned about it in 2010, I think it was, um, because I subscribed to, it, it's a fairly esoteric journal of search engine engineering, technology, uh, uh, and search in general called Twitter. <laughs> um, and on Twitter, one of the people I follow was a senior search engineer at Google who wrote a, a, a post on his personal blog that posted an update to Twitter answering a question that he was tired of hearing. And that was, why doesn't Google have a proximity connector? And he was tired of answering the question because the answer was, we have one, and we use it internally, and here's what it is, and here's how it works. And he wrote that as if he was surprised that no one knew about it outside <laughs> of Google. But there's no documentation. Is there still so, no documentation? There is still no documentation. We check periodically, and, and it, it's not documented. In it's fact, in fact the last time I checked was about two weeks ago, and there remains no documentation. Wow. So there is, and if you search for uh, Google and Proximity Connector uh, on Google, um, one of the uh, first results that you'll find generally is a post on our blog, and that's for lawyers.com, that explains it and how it works. Uh, because we did extensive testing to see how it works, um, how far you could go with the proximity. And it is so undocumented, in fact, um, that uh, I saw a post just recently from a private investigator who we know uh, and follow uh, online uh, and know in the real world, um, who wanted to verify that it still worked and still worked the same way. She ran some tests, and it did. And then she contacted this same senior search engineer at Google via Twitter and asked him if it was still the same. And his response was the, in the affirmative, yes, it is. <laughs> but there's still no documentation. Um, and to that point, I'll also mention that unlike uh, the, the paid services that uh, Sam was referring to earlier, where you could use a, a more precise proximity connector to say you want your terms within the same paragraph if you're searching for party names, for example, Google only has the around. Uh, or I should say the around is the best of its proximity connectors. There's another one um, that's little known um, that uh, is an asterisk in between keywords that can replace one or more than one keyword. Um, but the around can be a little bit more precise because we can add the number of terms we want our keywords around. Well, I wanted to talk about the wildcard because I think the wildcard is another really powerful um, search option, right? Okay, but but before, before we get there, I, I just want to mention um, that you can sort of approximate the within the same paragraph search by searching uh, for your keywords around 10 or 15 uh, terms of oh, one sure. another. Um, once you get past that, it becomes less useful, and it, it turns into more of an and search. Uh, but uh, around 10 or 15 seems to work pretty well. Very cool. So let's talk about the wildcard, because this is one you, you mentioned if you wanted to find um, Sam and Samuel, Google is smart enough to know. Uh, but if you wanted to be sure, maybe I have a less 
a less popular name that Google doesn't automatically guess some alternatives to. Um, or one that has various spellings. For example, Carol, you spell it with an E. Uh, but if I don't know that, I might type in C-A-R-O-L with an asterisk um, in order to make sure that I get it. Although that's going to pull up Caroline and Carolina and anything else similar to that too. So I might need to pull out my not connector and say not C-A-R-O-L-I-N. And wild card. Would that do it for me? Well, the, the wild card at Google, it, it's kind of weird because it, it works a little bit differently. Rather oh, than using it, it to, to stem the search or to stem, stem a search term the way that you just mentioned, um, which Google kind of does automatically. Um, if, so if I run that search, as you suggested, for Carol Levitt, uh, with no e, I would get I would get the Carol with no e at the beginning of my results, and then I would I would start to see the results for people um, whose name have uh, an e on it later on um, in my search results. But Google wants us to use the asterisk as a, a proximity connector or as a wild card in between terms. So rather than taking the place of uh, one or more than one letters. Uh, at the end of a term to stem it, the wild card takes the place of one or more than one uh, keywords in our results. So if, uh, if I was searching uh, for Francis Ford Coppola, I might search for Francis asterisk Coppola, and I would get results that include first and last name only or that also include um, his middle name or middle initial. So it's not as open-ended then? Um, no, it's not as the, the, the wild card is not as open ended um, as you would see it used elsewhere. So when you when you put the asterisk, you're actually it's, it's you put the, the first word, then a space, then the asterisk, then a space, then the next word. So the asterisk doesn't go adjacent to the word. So it would not be C A R O L asterisk. That works on Lexus and Westlaw. It does not work on Google. So yeah, what you're basically the, saying is uh, the asterisk means a word that I don't know. That, that is precisely correct. It says there is something missing here, and I can't recall what it is. Um, one of the examples uh, that Google uses most often in their documentation uh, refers to quotations. So if you're thinking of a quote or a passage, but you can't remember the entire thing, you might add an asterisk in the middle of the quote uh, to serve as a wild card to fill in that blank. Very cool. Now, if you wanted to only search my name spelled the way I spell it, C-A-R-O-L-E, you actually can do that by putting my name in quotation marks. Most people think that quotation marks is only for a phrase, but you can also use it for a single word. And when you use the quotation marks, whether it's for one word or a phrase, you're telling Google, I want this word spelled exactly the way I typed it. I don't want any variations. And when you use it for a phrase, you're telling Google, I want this phrase spelled this exact way, and I want these words in this exact order. So the quotation mark really has two different functions. So we've been talking about Google. Is there anything else we should really know about Google? Well, I think you should know that if you use Google Scholar, and I think a lot of people use it for free That's case where I was log, going. Ah, that <laughs> um, I think Google Scholar was an afterthought. Google Scholar began as an articles database, 
And then one day, you know, I think Mark might have read it on Twitter, and I think it was something like, guess what we added last night? Yeah, I would, I would say, <laughs> I, just to clarify Carol's point, I would say that the addition of case law to Google Scholar has been an afterthought. Right. Um, and, and that is exactly how the official announcement of case law and Google Scholar came about. There was uh, a tweet uh, from a product manager at Google who, who didn't work on um, uh, Google Scholar was not his product, but he found out that someone was working on including case law. He is a lawyer, and, and he used his 20% time, or some of his 20% time, to help on that project. And when it was completed, uh, his tweet read, I, I think it was something like, can you guess what we've added to the search page at Google Scholar? Period. End of tweet. <laughs> and, and it came um, at... I want to say it was about, uh, it was sometime between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Pacific time. So when we say it's an afterthought, I think what we really mean is no one at Google documented it. If you go to Google Scholar today and you look at help pages, they don't explain how to actually search it for case law. And they never changed their advanced search page menu to reflect that it's case law. So I think my top example is, there's a field where you can search um, author. And, of course, articles have authors, <laughs> and cases have judges. So if you type in the name of a judge in the author field, that's a judge search. There's nowhere in the advanced search menu to search by citation. But if you put a citation into the phrase box in the advanced search box, you can run a citation search. So it's just really not set up correctly for case law searching. And um, in the CyberSleuth's Guide to the Internet, the book that Mark and I use at our seminar, we have you know, a huge um, amount of pages explaining to lawyers how to use Google Scholar. Now, Google Scholar is um, not as good as Fast Case and Casemaker. If your state offers you through your state or local bar or another entity access to this, Fast case or case maker for free, please use that. It's much better. Uh, and gotcha. when Carol says, if your local or state bar does, she means any place other than California. Because um, 49 uh, of the states offer uh, their members access uh, to one or the other uh, of those databases. California is the lone exception on the state bar level that does not. Wow. Um, and Texas, uh, being Texas, offers access to both. Very nice. Um, wow. So I, I guess I didn't realize. So should I worry that Google Scholar is incomplete? Did they add a bunch of case law and then never add any more? Or is it kept somewhat current? Well, Sam, that's a great question. Um, we don't know how current it is because there's no documentation. Mm -hmm. um, we think that it's kept up, you know, fairly regularly. And we also know that Scholar will bring in cases from various sources, so they might get it straight from the court, or they might get um, a data dump from FastCase, for instance. Hmm. And so sometimes when you're searching Google Scholar, you'll see two and three uh, variations of that same case. It could be the original case. It could be one that was modified later by the court. Um, it's really kind of a mess, to be honest. So it sounds now, like a pretty wild, it, wild west for case law research. Yes. And I use it, like, for quick and dirty stuff. But if I'm going to be submitting a brief to the court, I'm probably going to use a pay database or I'm going to use my fast case or case maker. And I should also add that Google Scholar, 
Fast Case and Casemaker do not have as good citators as Lexus, Westlaw, and Bloomberg. There are a couple of projects underway to change that, though, aren't there? Uh, Case Text. We had somebody from Case Text on the podcast recently, and they just launched their crowdsourced citator. And I know Fast Case has been working on one, too, but I can't remember the, what they're calling it. Well, here's the problem with, um, to, to this day, with Scholar, Fast Case, and Casemaker. They will have unpublished cases in their database. And, you know, everyone does that. Lexus does that. Westlaw does that. So if you read an unpublished case, it will show you that there is no later treatment of that case. No other case has um, affirmed it or reversed it or overruled it. But that's not true because mm-hmm. the citator of Google Scholar, Casemaker, and Fastcase do not include unpublished cases. So the database has unpublished cases, the databases of case law, but their citators do not. Gotcha. Interesting. And, and there, is, there is an article, I believe, on our Net for Lawyers site uh, that explains that and shows you how I ran the same case through Fastcase, Casemaker, Google Scholar, Lexis, Westlaw, and Bloomberg, and I show you where the problem is. And then I also explain how you can kind of create your own citator to make sure you haven't missed anything or make sure uh, scholar, fast case, and case maker haven't missed anything is what I should say. Gotcha. So maybe maybe one of the last things we should talk about then is um, how to search expensive research databases for free, which is a topic you guys sometimes cover. Um, yes, we always cover that. Now, I'm a former law librarian, and so I, I really love libraries. But I'm a little lazy. I don't actually like to go to the library. I like to sit at my computer. (laughs) And many years ago, I found out that almost every public library in the country actually lets you remotely access expensive databases that the library subscribes to. And you can access them from your home or your office computer. And you only need one thing, and that's your public library card. Now, you can apply for your public library card online but you have to physically go to the library to get your library card. Once you have that card, you put the number that's on the back of the card into your library's uh, website where they have the databases, and sometimes they'll want you to have um, also maybe a password. Every library is a little bit different. And you then have access to sometimes um, hundreds of databases, full text, many of them up-to-date, many of them going back far in time. And just for an example, what kinds of databases? Um, it could be full-text articles or newspaper articles, magazines, newspapers. So if you're doing background research on a person, a company, a topic, you can search these databases for free instead of paying. I know when I go to my uh, newspaper database, uh, I can maybe get the last seven days for free, but then they want a couple dollars to see an older article. Well, I can avoid that if I use my library card and use the library newspaper magazine databases. And it's not just articles. Mark, can you think of some other great databases that we like? Uh, aside, aside from local papers, before we get to other databases, uh, they also include um, national papers or papers of record like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal instituted an, a notorious paywall uh, not uh, too long ago um, to... Uh, shield their content from the prying eyes of people on the Internet who didn't want to pay for it. Well, you can still view it without paying for it as long as you have your library card and Internet access. Um, Some of the other uh, databases that uh, we've seen at libraries 
include, um, as Carol mentioned, uh, specifically information about companies. Um, there are uh, uh, Standard and Poor's and Moody's uh, databases available that have information on public and private companies. Uh, there are two databases that are very similar, and most libraries will offer one or the other, um, uh, either Reference USA or the A to Z databases, uh, which have information uh, about 200 um, million plus uh, residences and millions of public and private, often private companies uh, in their databases that are searchable by name, location, uh, SIC code, if you want to find companies in a particular industry, um, all available for free. Um, many libraries also, or I should say some libraries, um, also offer databases of legal forms um, that can be useful uh, to some attorneys. Um, and even just more, uh, more general uh, type databases on um, uh, like encyclopedias, yeah, uh, dictionaries, uh, medical information, scientific, anything that a lawyer needs to look up, anything related to any of his cases, oftentimes you can find for free on the internet. So I'm flipping through my I'm flipping through my city library uh, account right now while I'm talking to you, and I found the online resources section. Um, and I'm kind of blown away by all of the things I can search. I can't search Westlaw next. I can only do that in the library, um, at least at my library. But um, but I do have access to some other legal databases and forms. And this is awesome. And and, and most people are, are unaware because the libraries uh, will often hide the the links to those uh, databases behind really vague links mm -hmm. on their home pages. Um, sometimes it'll say research or online databases or online resources. Sometimes it'll just say homework or homework help um, <laughs> or just resources, and it's kind of unclear what that might be. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting that you brought up Westlaw next because many libraries uh, are beginning to offer uh, free access to legal research databases, but almost all of them. Uh, I think I'll, I'll go out as far as to say all of them that I've seen require you to come into the library. Uh, to use them. Um, and the same is true for uh, the Ancestry Genealogy uh, Research Database, hmm. which can be very useful um, for attorneys doing background research on individuals if you're looking for um, uh, missing witnesses or potential witnesses or heirs uh, or doing title work uh, and need to find uh, potential relatives. Uh, the Ancestry Database is very powerful, uh, and you can use it for free if you go to the library with your library card to use it. And then you're supporting your library. You are absolutely supporting your library, and that the, the the notion that the the databases are free is it's kind of um, a, a misconception in that the libraries are paying for access to these databases. Yeah, um, and they they pay a set licensing fee. I'm assuming based either on the number of patrons who are registered at the library or the number of potential patrons in their metro area. Uh -huh. um, so you're already paying for these services. If, you're, if your tax dollars go to support the public library, you're already paying for these services. So you most definitely want to use them. And as, as you say, uh, Sam, supporting public libraries is very important. You know, I want to say a couple more things about the libraries. I once wrote an article for the Los Angeles Lawyer to let the lawyers know about all the great databases they had uh, they could access from their 
computer. And so and for people who are not in Los Angeles, um, Los Angeles Lawyer is the magazine of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. Carol didn't just write this for some random Los Angeles lawyer. Right. Okay, so <laughs> it was 20,000 members of the Los Angeles County uh, Lawyer Association. And I wrote this article, and I was actually a little worried that maybe the Los Angeles Public Library wouldn't like the article. Um, I didn't really know if it was a dark secret that you can access these great databases. Mm-hmm. And I actually got a nice long email from the director of the Los Angeles uh, Public Library thanking me for letting lawyers know about this really gem uh, resource. Um, So I was really happy about that. And then I also got, um, I'm on a law library listserv, and a couple days ago a law librarian in Michigan asked, how can I find out how many employees work at a private company? And so I emailed back to the listserv and I said, well, you could try Reference USA, use your library card, because they have sort of a mini Dun & Bradstreet of private and public companies. And she emailed back and thanked me. And then the next day I got an email from Reference USA, <laughs> and they thanked me for letting people know about them. So I really think libraries and the databases want the public to know about them. They want you to use these resources. Well, they're paying for them. Of course they do. Right, exactly. But they're so unknown. And Mark and I show them at every single seminar. You know, we do seminars all over the country, and we show that particular city or county's libraries to the attorneys, and we give them the secret URL, because as Mark said earlier, sometimes it's hard to find the resource on your public library site. Now, Sam, you said you just pulled it right up. Yeah, it, so, wasn't, it wasn't super obvious, but it, there's a browse uh, item on the menu, and underneath it is online resources. But yeah, it was pretty easy to find. That's great. Yeah. Wow, this is so cool. I mean, I love I love libraries. I love that, you know, the internet comes along and everybody's like, oh, libraries are irrelevant. Libraries are like, screw you, we totally aren't, and we're awesome, and look <laughs> at all the other cool things we can do, so... Uh, I think I think that libraries are more important than ever, um, and libraries serve, in many ways, the same function that Carol and I serve in CLE. Yes, there's a lot of information out there. Yes, you can find almost anything that you want, but the key is you have to know how to look for it. Um, if anything, um, we and uh, libraries definitely, and we hopefully, um, serve as filters for that kind of information. Um, I, I like to tell people, um, when, very often at our live CLE seminars, people will ask us you know, how we keep up with all this and how we know all this. And the answer is, this is our job. This is what we do. Um, I, I like to tell them that we waste thousands of hours online clicking on stuff so that they don't have to. <laughs> Because you can spend thousands, literally thousands of hours wasting your time finding useless information on the Internet. I think everyone has had that experience, either um, running down a rabbit hole of tangentially uh, associated information that does not lead to useful facts at the end, uh, or being distracted by shiny objects on various search engines um, that distract our attention from our actual uh, research project. Uh, but... Uh, Our goal is to filter the best resources and the best tools and the best strategies for lawyers to find the information that's going to be useful uh, to their cases so that they can put it to work for them. So that's an excellent segue. Uh, for me to to start wrapping up here, but um, the segue is so if somebody wanted to plumb the depths of your knowledge and get the guide to what you know about internet research, um, which of your books should they start with? Hmm. I would say that it depends um, which depths they wish to plumb. 
um, because we and we've, we've sort of touched on it in the conversation today. Uh, there, there's a lot of information on the Internet, a lot of different kinds of information on the Internet. Um, for attorneys who were primarily uh, interested in doing background or investigative research about people or companies or various topics, I would say that our book, The Cyber Sleuth's Guide to the Internet, would be uh, the better resource because it discusses all of the things, uh, it discusses all of the the strategies and uh, search tools that we've talked about in the conversation today and infinitely more. Um, the, uh, and, Mark, we should also say that at our seminar, that's the course book. Yes. So if people attend our seminars, they get the 500-page book uh, as part of the, the course. So, so look, look for that course coming to the bar association near you. To, yeah, to listeners, if you get a chance to go to see Mark and Carol speak, you really should. I mean, it, it's like... You you shouldn't be on the internet if you don't know how to do some of this stuff. Honestly, I mean it's. And thank you. That's so nice. And I also wanted to say that that the um, you asked about which book they should have. If you're doing pure legal research, cases, codes, statutes, regulations, then the ABA book that I wrote, not with Mark, uh, I wrote with someone named Judy Davis, is called Internet Legal Research on a Budget. Fantastic. And I think that's going to be your best bet for legal research. And uh, Judy Davis isn't just uh, someone. Um, like Carol, uh, Judy is a lawyer uh, and law librarian, um, currently on faculty at the University of Southern California. Well, and today we've talked about some basic skills and websites and tools, but I think um, what we didn't talk about today is sort of strategies um, and search strategies, which you guys definitely talk about in your books. Um, but it's sort of the the kind of, if I were trying to find this sort of thing and just typing it directly into Google wasn't getting me anywhere, how would I go about finding that thing by going through other processes and, and what kind of strategies would I employ? And uh, maybe we'll do another podcast on that, or maybe you'll just have to find it in a seminar or a book. I, I think that would be all of those are wonderful <laughs> ideas. Well, Carol and Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I I love talking about this stuff, and we could geek out on it all day, but I really appreciate your input today. Sure, good. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story, and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers, and I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try, 
And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.